And they would interview us, and we'd be like, yo, why aren't you playing De La? Why aren't you playing Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, Tribe Called Quest? Why aren't you playing NWA? We would name all these artists. And they'd be what like, was their response? Haha, well, let's go to the number one record, Pop Goes the Weasel. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Fame can be intoxicating, but it's often fleeting and finite. Once somebody gets a taste for the spotlight and celebrity success, it can be very difficult for them to let it go. We've witnessed countless athletes and entertainers overstay their welcome on the public stage as they attempt to prolong their 15 minutes. Today's guest is an icon of hip-hop who made his mark in the groundbreaking rap duo Third Base, which gave us the classic hits The Gas Face, Brooklyn Queens, and Pop Goes the Weasel. Despite two certified gold albums, he eventually opted to gracefully walk away from performing and leave behind his role on the center stage. In 1994, he helped negotiate a record deal for Nas and executive produced his debut masterpiece album, Illmatic. Since then, he's largely shunned the spotlight and continued to leverage both his influence and knowledge from behind the scenes. He's committed himself to assisting other artists, giving back to the community, promoting self-expression, positivity, and staying true to the tenets of both his Jewish faith and the legacy of the hip-hop culture that he fell in love with as a teenage battle rapper. After more than 30 years in the music industry, he lives by the motto, it's not the strong that survive, it's the flexible. So what does it take to stop tens of thousands of LA gang members from carrying out a hit on your life commissioned by MC Hammer? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with one of the most enduring figures in hip-hop. Today, rapper, producer, entrepreneur, and hip-hop historian repping Far Rockaway Queens, MC Search. MC Search, thank you for sitting down, man. This is a real pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. Everything good these days? Anything, yeah, anything yeah. You want to plug I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, um, when, do I have anything I want to plug? I mean, there's plenty going on in my life. I feel like uh, you can do one thing great or a lot of things really, really well. And I choose to do a lot of things really, really well. I mean, what we're doing at Forum C Multimedia is really special. Started a company with my wife, Chantel, five years ago. Yeah, it's five years ago now to try to tell stories. So it started with our podcast company, the Timeless Podcast Company. And um, we did season one with a uh, very open, honest discussion with Big Daddy Kane. And did I ever tell you the one about Big Daddy Kane? But for me, you know, the important thing in telling our stories is I didn't want them to be just music and just narration. You know, so my wife and I spent almost a year and a half meeting with headphone companies, car companies, theater speaker companies, understanding how the drivers work, understanding how speakers work and creating this theater of the mind, this immersive sound design around our storytelling. Because for me, that was really an important part of 
the legacy of our artists. You know, when you think about a big daddy Kane, you know, Kane for all intent and purpose, if he would have came out in 2022, you know, he would have been Benny the Butcher. He would have been doing, you know, a billion streams, you know. Yeah, but because, you know, he was 17, 18 in 1987 when he did his first records, Rama with Biz, or when he did the symphony, hip hop was still in its its infant you know, stages and there wasn't a lot of ways to make money and there wasn't a lot of ways to control your destiny the way artists today do. So for me to tell his story in a way that felt like it was paying proper homage was to, you know, immerse the design of the sound so that when he talks about, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, you feel it. You know, when he talks about his father escaping racism in the Carolinas and jumping on a bus in the middle of the night, you hear the bus. And and you feel the bus panning left to right, you know, and my personal favorite is I listen to our podcasts in um, my theater room because As we record experience. them. Yeah, yeah, because we, we record them in a 6.2 surround sound environment. You know, we partnered with Dolby Atmos. So I turn off the lights and, you know, I just listen. Go for it. Um, yeah. Um, and same thing with MF Doom. Like, you know, I just felt it was really important to tell Doom's story in a way that was, again, immersive to make him iconic and make him feel the way he felt. And even with our, you know, podcast on recovery, breaking anonymity, same thing, you know, when Slane talks about living in a, you know, a vacant building in Boston, we wanted that sound of air running through, you know, cracked windows. And when Danny boy talks about at the peak of their career, him living under a fucking tunnel, you know what I'm saying? Like we wanted you to experience what he was saying. You talked a lot about hip hop history. I want to jump into your history for a second. Um, let's just get right in it. The Cactus album, classic. I fucking love that album when it first came out. And Thank you. One of one of my favorite tracks on the album was a song called "Product of the Environment." And there was a line in that in that song talking about Secret Boulevard, Beach Seventeen. At the time it came out, I had no point of reference for what that meant whatsoever. But for the last 15 years or so, I've had a place out in Rockaway. I share a bungalow with a bunch of surf buddies and I have a lot of friends out there. I spend a lot of time out there. Pretty familiar with the terrain out there. Um, for, the, for those who aren't that familiar, Rockaway is a, it's a peninsula in New York City, uh, butts up to JFK and to Jamaica Bay. And it's, it's surprisingly diverse, which isn't to say integrated, because on the westernmost part, you have Breezy Point, which is very white. A lot of cops, a lot of firemen, a lot of MAGA. On the opposite end, a world away, far rock away where you grew up. A big Orthodox community and a lot of public housing and everything that goes along with that. Paint a picture for me what it was like growing up there. And, and how, did you first, how did you first fall in love with hip hop? I mean, you know, the, it's funny that you talk about diversity but not integration. You know, that's not how it was for me when I was growing up. Uh, growing up in Far Rockaway in the 70s and being a kid going to PS197, it was, you know, my best friends were, you know, Puerto Rican, Black, you know, Jewish, um, Russian, you know, um, Italian. And we all just kind of hung together. You know, our, our thing was, you know, we all could flip cards. We all could play skelly. We all could play tonk. You know, we all could play basketball. We all could play stickball. We all could play handball. You know, I was just having this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. And not to be blunt about it, but there's this thing that white people like to say when they talk about integration and they talk about, you know, separation. They say, well, I don't see color. No. You know, my mother, may she rest in peace, used to always say, 
No, you should see color. You should see black and brown and Asian and purple. And just don't judge anybody on their character based on their color. I think there's this modern notion, this, this, this conflation between recognizing race and being racist. Right. That's exactly right. And for me, there was, there was no racism. You know, there was no, you know, my friend Gregory was my friend Gregory. He wasn't my black friend Gregory. My friend Stephen was my friend Stephen. He wasn't my black friend Stephen. My friend Diego was not my Puerto Rican friend Diego. My friend Mike Shaw wasn't my white friend Mike, you know. So, you know, so there was no um, sense of race. You know, we were all just kind of kids hanging out. And when did, when did hip hop enter the scene? When did you fall in love with that? I mean, that was probably around 78. 77, 78. And were you traveling to, to, to shows no, at no, that point no, no, it came no, to you? No, I was, um, I was in seventh grade in middle school. I was going to um, IS-53, Brian Piccolo School, and uh, we had a talent show. And my friends and I were listening to cassette tapes and, uh, you know, of all these park jams. And they started b-boying at the time, which was this dance. The very basic beginning parts of breakdancing which were just like a lot of different intricate, but very simple at the same time floor moves uh, where your hands were basically on the floor and you were just basically utilizing, you know, the bottom half of your body to, you know, kick or go in circles. And, you know, it was very, very basic parts of it. But, you know, for the student body, they were like, oh, that's the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. And graffiti was always a big part of, you know, I think Ed Koch called it graffiti. You know what I'm saying? Like the trains were all, you know, mucked up. One of my favorite Little Wayne lines uh, in that Destiny Child record is tatted up like the subways in Harlem, you know. You know, that's how the trains were. It's just like marked up. It's funny, Grandmaster DST said it on Clubhouse a couple, couple of years ago, and it's resonated with me. There was no name of this thing that we were doing. It was just something that we were doing. You know, guys were, you know, DJing in parks or they were, you know, using microphones in the parks or they were doing these b-boying or tagging their names on the walls or, you know, spinning records, but there was no culture. So we were just kind of involved in it through osmosis. Um, but no, I, I, you know, I didn't really go to my first, I didn't go to my first jam until 82. And, and when did you, when did it, when did it transform from falling in love with this, this new form of dance that was, that was so amazing to, to actually getting on the mic and, and being an MC. I mean, I think for me it was when I went to uh, the high school of music and art uh, and I left, you know, my little inlet uh, and took the A train to, you know, 125th street and changed for the one train to 135th street and went up St. Nicholas stairs to uh, music and art high school and uh, got to, see firsthand, you know, what these artists were doing and saying. And um, you know, one of my favorite groups that I heard on these cassette tapes was a group called the Kango Crew. Um, they used to do these routines, Hillbilly Girl and Indian Girl. And like they had all these routines. I couldn't really hear them because by the time the cassettes got to my friends, they were like fifth, sixth, seventh generation. So it sounded more like uh, the teacher from, you know, Peanuts and less than, you know, <laughs> Rhyming, right, right, right. You know, but you heard little things. There was a dude, two couple of dudes with a English accent, and then there was two other dudes. You know, so it was this whole crew, and then there was this other group called the Force MCs. And then um, my first day of music and art, I got to hear these guys doing the routine, and um, I said to the guy who was walking me around the school, we had a big brother, big sister program where freshmen were lined up with, you know, 
seniors. And the guy who um, was walking me around was a guy named Stephen Bosco, may he rest in peace. And I remembered Hillbilly Girl, and I was like, oh, that's Hillbilly Girl. That's the Kango Crew routine. And this guy looks at me, he goes, no, motherfucker, that is the Kango Crew. It was like seeing, you know, superstars for the first time. Because in your mind, they were just, there were these figures that existed yeah, elsewhere. No, yeah, not these, somebody yeah there was no music out. videos. You know, and it was a guy named Ricky D and a guy named Dana Dane and Lance Romance and and... You know, Ricky D became Slick Rick and Dana Dane, you know, became, you know, Nightmares of the Night. And the guy next to me in my locker was a guy named Jay who became Jay Cool from the Fresh Three MCs. And it was like all these guys all of a sudden are making records in 84 and 85 that, you know, that are becoming like the biggest songs in New York. And um, I was, you know, writing my little raps. But, you know, I was told very early on that, like, I could listen, but I couldn't be a participator. Why is that? Well, it's because it was black culture. Yeah. And I was white. So, you know, but I did see a guy who was a white guy named Vanilla B, also known as Blake Latham, uh, Keo, graffiti artist named Keo. And um, he was the first white rapper I ever saw. And he walked around with a lucite cane and wallabies and had a, you know, Kango. And I was like, oh, well, you know, if he could do it, you know. So I just used to follow him around like a puppy dog, you know, like, you know. Cause he was from Brooklyn and you know, I'm from far Rockaway. Like, you know, I'm less than, you know, but I'd fallen in love with hip hop. You know, when I saw the Kango crew in person, you hear stories of people that say they do stand up comedy for the first time. And like, you really have to do it in front of a crowd to really like do it for the first time. When you first started rhyming, was there a, a lot of bedroom practice over cassette tapes or how, how did you first get into that? No, nah, I just, you know, I would, um, write my little rhymes in my little rap rhyme book. And uh, I would just, you know, practice them in the house. There was no, there was no cassettes. Like, you know, I didn't know how to make songs. Like, you know, was, <laughs> I was just like rapping in my house. So, you know, you, you brought up race. I'm, I'm curious about that. So you cut to a few years later when you're first on the come up and, and you started doing battles. And I would suspect that as a, as a white rapper, like even today, there's like a stigma with, with, with that term. And I would think that the assumption when you stepped to the mic was that you were going to be whack. When you quickly proved them otherwise, was there a sense that you almost got like a pass? Like, oh, it's a little bit of a novelty, almost like a, the, the, the soft bigotry of, of low expectations? Or was it the other way around where you felt like, I have this baggage or this handicap and I just got to be a fucking beast. I got to be that much better. I got to knock it out of the park just to even be in contention and to be allowed to be in the game. Yeah, I, the 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 latter, not the former. Like I really felt, and I was told to my face that you better be better than every other person out there to even be allowed to get on this mic. So one of the things, you know, early on, because the culture was based on battling, was I was a battle MC, and yeah, I mean, I was definitely the underdog at every battle I ever went to. Yeah, I had friends of mine in in Red Firm projects who had set up these battles for me in different projects outside of, you know, Queens. And they would purposely set up the battles near the subway station. So when I would come up to like whatever projects I was coming up to, there would be this, you know, cipher of guys, certain you know, group of guys and and some girls, but there was it was always dudes. And I would come up the stairs and they oh, and my friend math or my man undie would go oh that's search and whatever little money was being bet would like triple because it was like oh you know 
Also, the big thing was my friends were becoming 5%, so I was a devil. Like, I was a white devil all the time. I was a devil, and, you know, so. So the numbers would just go up, go up and up and up. But one of the, the things that I was able to do was, which was unheard of at the time, was I rhymed off the top of my head. So battle rhymes and guys who battle rapped in 1985, 86, and 87 always wrote their rhymes. Always. There was no one rhyming off the top of the head. So you had the advantage. You could do context-specific rhymes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would break somebody down head to toe. Break them down head to toe. So they would be shook. And and then my quote-unquote routine, which wasn't a routine, but it's just how I did things. My first rhyme was about what you were wearing. Just to let people know, like, I'm in the moment. You still got it? Oh, yeah, for sure. You want to spit a bar about this outfit I'm wearing? Yeah, you mean about the... The hat that's in Yankee blue with the NY that looks like Hebrew and those headphones that are bows and those scruff and that goatee that's near that Jewish nose and your teeth are kind of pearly white. That's all right. And I like that sore sleeve shirt. It's kind of tight. That wristwatch. Yeah, maybe fake, maybe real. Skater sneakers. Okay. They got a little appeal. Them jeans are a little snug, but you get some love from some other white girls that are probably on that. Anyway. Damn. So, okay. anyway, so, um, and then, so the next verse, the guy would kick, and then I would break down what he said to me. And then I would just rip him apart about his verse. Spit it back to him. Yeah. And say, oh, you said this, but you should have said this. And then, uh, and you would just start hearing even his own boys going, oh, oh, you know. And then, but the reason that the battle would happen near the subway is after the money got exchanged, dudes would try to get the Vic. So I would have to dip into the subway to avoid getting robbed. Because I would have all the money, my boys would give me the money, then they would kind of shield me, and then, you know, and then I would dip because nine times out of ten they were going to try to rob me and get the money back, and then some. And then one time I got shot at um, at the end of a park jam. Yeah, like that's it, and that was it. Yeah. So you know, I was watching some old third base videos, getting ready for this, and it made me realize just how different of a place New York City is now than it was then. I mean, you look at the Sunoco station on, on, on Lafayette and, and Houston. And now it's, it's an office building, you know, tower records for a while turned into a soul cycle. Eighth street is just fucking vape shops and yogurt shop. It's, you know, it's garbage. But I mean, you even rapped about this in a way and you had that line. Yo, you're parking making, lot with a Latin make, quarter stood. Exactly. Yo, you're making mills, but what about the hood? Yep. A parking lot with a Latin quarter stood. And it, it's kind of prophetic Mark, Mark in a way. Cradium, and I bring it back in front of Pack Stadium. So, I mean, it seems like the the destruction of some of these cultural landmarks is like a downside product of, of a thriving economy, you know, in the sense that Manhattan is way more developed than it was back then. Real estate, way more expensive than it was back then. But it seemed like that that economic pie didn't necessarily spread to far Rockaway, and and because of that, is there a sense of of that neighborhood being preserved in time a little bit more than maybe other places in New York? Like when you go back there, does it feel kind of the same, or is it changed just like like everywhere else in New York? That's a great question. I'm you know I can only put it into context with my mother and father dying. My father passed away uh, last year, and we sold this house and. The house I was there was, you know, a blank square foot, maybe 2,000 square feet at best, 3-2, center hall, center hall cottage. Me and my brother, you know, slept in the same room until we were like blank years old, till I moved out. You know, my sister had her own room. Uh, there was a basement where we played ping pong, you know. You go back to that house right now, it's a McMansion. Like they fucking family of 10, you know, kids. They built a fucking McMansion, like, you know. 
every square foot of that, you know, 64 by 100. Stainless steel gate, brick nah, right not up even to the sta- No, nah, not even stainless steel gate, but like, you know, that was a, you know, it was a typical 60 by 100 lot in Far Rockaway. You know, my, my father and mother, made it rest in peace, bought that house in 1966 for $40,000. And my father sold it in 2017 for 800 grand. Oh. And it and he probably sold it short because they could have probably gotten like another 300, you know, racks for that three years later, but he needed to live on the money. And now they built this McMansion, you know? So, I mean, look, I was going to stay at the Far Rockaway Hotel on 116th Street. Yeah, they're charging, have you been there yet? Not yet, but they're charging 600 a night. Oh, no, they're competing with like a real boutique hotel, not, and I'm like, not like a Rockaway situation. Are you fucking kidding? Like 600 a night? Like, I was going to pay it. Like, I'm no, I'm not even going to lie, no cap. I was going to pay it. But there's a part of you as a far Rockaway citizen that you're like, really? 600 for fucking 116th Street? For real? Like, so you can appreciate growth. But, you know, you got gastro pubs and shit like that. And I just want to go to Frank's, yeah. you know, on, on Mott Avenue and fucking have like, you know, a scrambled egg and cheese and a, and a beef sausage with a fucking piece of wheat bread or... You know, egg and cheese on a on a Kaiser roll. You know what I mean? Like, just, you know, keep it basic. And I still think you have those places. I still think you have bodegas, you know, near Hamels and near, you know, and near Red Fern. And that's not going to change. But you also have, you know, Edgewater that's become, you know, a whole different vibe. Yeah, I mean, even in the 15, 18 years that I've been going out there, it's like there used to be a Chinese spot on the corner and then the ghetto grocery store. And that's kind of about it. And now you have... Two wine bars, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not making a value judgment either way. It's just like it's it's interesting how progress works. You know? Yeah, no. I'm, I listen. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not knocking what I think. It's amazing what they've built in in Rockaway Park. I think that it's amazing. I think that it would be great if that transferred a little, you know, a little east. Father, that's what I was getting at. Because I know? mean, there's definitely been. A lot of development, like especially post Sandy, like my place is on uh, on 88th Street, which pretty much, you know, dead center, both geographically and, you know, gentrification wise, too. Right. Um, before I moved to New York City, I moved here when I was 18. And before that, I lived in Santa Barbara. There was a real tight knit punk rock scene there. And there was there was a lot of people that had a sense of ownership and, and protection. And they're very possessive of this culture, you know, and to the extent where, say, you wore a black flag T-shirt you might get stepped to by some scary dude walking up and like asking you if you could name three black flag songs, you know? And as an adult looking back now, it might sound petty or maybe even a little bit like ridiculous, but like it meant something to us. It was real back then. And and I'm wondering if there's any parallels between that and some of the experiences you had, because you had some kind of high profile beefs with rappers back in the day. And I'm paraphrasing you, but it seems like you felt that they didn't represent what your vision of hip hop was, whether that was Vanilla Ice or the Beastie Boys or maybe Marky Mark, MC Hammer. That's a very different situation. I want to get into that for a second. But just in terms of, you know, looking back with the perspective of 30 years, like what are your thoughts on that? Do you ever cross paths with any of those guys? Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, we can break it down a little bit and I'll start with kind of the good and then with the the whatever, because it is kind of at this point, whatever. With the Beasties, more than anything else, it was a misunderstanding. But we were all young. The beef with those guys for me and, you know, may rest in peace, Sean, the Captain Karasov. And Sean was kind of our connective tissue. He was their tour manager. And the guys, 
And when I say the guys, I mean, you know, Adam and, and Yauk, may rest in peace. And Mike grew up with a guy that I went to high school with, um, Dave Skilkin from The Young and the Useless. May rest in peace. Dave and I went to high school together. So I had a couple of little here and there that were connective tissue. Obviously, Say City, who worked on our album, was really close with those guys. So, And our tour manager, Sake, was really tight with those guys. So that was a misunderstanding. I went to Mike's house because he lived right up the block on Barrow Street from Russell. And we were having some challenges with Russell. We were signed to Def Jam for a year and some change. He wasn't putting out the record. We were frustrated. They had just got off Def Jam. And um, I went to Mike's house, and Sean was sleeping on the sofa. But I, I asked you know, Mike for some advice as two you know, young 20-year-old kids like just trying to figure shit out. They had already got shit figured out. They had great management. We're being managed by the same guys who are fucking us. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like, you know, counterintuitive. And he, had, and he had some insight. And he did. And as I'm leaving, he starts throwing shit at me, laughing and throwing shit at me. So I'm just feeling like he's fucking around. I don't know what it was. Like a couple of months later, I'm reading Spin Magazine. And Alan Light, who was the editor at the time, did a piece with those guys. He asked Mike about us. And in the magazine, he said, Mike said, I'm not quoting him, paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, I know Search came by my place and I threw shit at him. And I'm like, yo, fuck you, dick. Yeah. Like, that's how you want to treat me? Fuck you. So Sons of Third Base came from that. So that was a product of a of an incident specific. Correct. So that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily or wasn't at all how you felt they were representing the culture. No, I definitely thought it was about how they were representing the culture. You know, again, we all grow up. You know, like, you know, LL, you know, is this big proponent. LL was the biggest hater of the Beastie Boys. I have video of LL talking about they, they're fucking it up for, for rappers with giant penises on stage and pouring beers on chicks and this and that. LL hated the Beastie Boys. Hated them. Biggest fucking anti-Beastie motherfucker ever. You grow up. You realize, and they like, did you know, too, though. That's, I mean, that's that's what's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like they did. The Beastie Boys, they grew up too, as yeah, well, of and, course, and, and evolved into yeah, something completely, completely different. Yeah, and um, we all kind of just grew up and changed. Yeah, and as I evolved, kind of out of making music and became more involved in other cultural pursuits of the of the of hip hop, clothing, and you know promotion and marketing and all of that it was very easy to love and respect those guys for what they were able to accomplish because what they were able to do is something that I was always hoping that I would be able to do and I couldn't do it with the guys that I started with just because it just wasn't in the cards so it was easy to love and appreciate that they could still years later rock crowds yeah. Um, which is what I really, at the end of the day, it's all I ever wanted to do is be on stage and rock crowds. So that was easy, you know, and that was easy to respect them culturally. Um, Mark Wahlberg was a different, a different thing. Again, as an artist, no respect at all. Um, I don't respect him. Um, I didn't like good vibrations. I didn't like anything that he ever did. Hard not to respect what he became, right? Not only just what he became as a human being, totally separate, him and Donnie and his family. But what he also did in helping the culture move forward through media and supporting and promoting records and artists and, you know, through the media portal and through the power that he created for himself. 
But as an artist, you know, I could give two shits about, you know, him. Um, no matter how real he was or how much time he did with, you know, I don't give a fuck if you did three hot in a cot. Like, I give a fuck about that. The proof's in the pudding you know? and you didn't yeah, like nah, the pudding. Yeah, nah, at the end of the day, your records are whack. You know what I'm saying? So, like, and that's just what it was. But I've never met Mark Wahlberg face to face. Like, I've never met him. But if I met him, I would show him the respect he deserves. I would never disrespect him. Vanilla Ice, Amir Questlove said something in a magazine once that made the most sense to me out of anyone who's ever kind of analyzed Vanilla Ice's career. He said, Vanilla Ice started with Ice Ice Baby as the biggest joke in hip hop. And now, 30 some odd years later, it's a record that he can play during a nostalgia mix where people can laugh and have a good time. Yeah. I think it seems like hip hop and pop music and pop culture are so intertwined now that it's, it's easy to forget that that wasn't always the case. Yeah, and no, I think that, that's question. where a lot of this and, stems and yeah, from. And, and, and with Vanilla Ice, like, he was a joke. He was a liar. He lied about who he was. He lied about where he was from. He lied about, you know, what he did. He was a pathological liar about how he got on. And the only reason, the only reason is because... He stole a well-known Greek chant. He took a very well-known beat that happened to be real catchy as fuck. And he was cute. And he happened to be signed to the best radio promotion label in the history of music. Daniel Glass, Charles Koppelman, SBK were single-handedly the greatest radio promotion label in the history of recorded music period the wilson sisters jesus jones like yo everything they fucking ever did became a number one record so he was in the right place the right time he had the right face john cohen rob stone were interns at sbk they went on to produce one of the greatest cultural significantly cultural magazines imprints cultural marketing, arms promotion, fader, cornerstone. I mean, he could not have been in better hands. It doesn't mean he was a fucking abomination to the culture. So for me, for a kid who got shot at at battles, for me who had to scrap every day to get on, put out independent records, You know, people don't realize, like, my second independent record, my record was called Go White Boy. I sampled Play That Funky Music way before fucking vinylized it. I didn't have an independent radio promotion budget. I couldn't, you know, do all the things he did. But I had huge following in New York that got me on. But, you know, when we did Pop Goes the Weasel, what made it so interesting to me was we would go to these pop stations and... We would be the number one record at this pop station. And number two would be, you know, You're Unbelievable by EMF. And number three would be, you know, some dangerous animal band, whether it was like, you know, Def Leppard or White Snake, (laughs) whatever the fuck it was, right? And they would interview us and we'd be like, yo, why aren't you playing De La? Why aren't you playing Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, Tribe Called Quest? Why aren't you playing NWA? Why aren't you playing DOC? Why aren't you playing... You know, Shy D, why aren't you? We would name all these artists and they'd be like, What was their response? Ha ha, well, let's go to the number one record, Pop Goes the Weasel. 
And that was it. So we were like at every station. We we'd go to Boston, the, you know, to the Buzz in in Pittsburgh. I I can name every pop station we went to where our record was number one, and we did the same thing every time. We'd say, "What you're playing is trash. Pop music is pop music, and it's fine, but hip hop is different. And stop playing this bullshit." Because there's great music out there that really defines what the culture is that should be playing on your pop station. You know, one of the things I remember early on, which got me into radio promotion, a guy named West Party Johnson, may he rest in peace, was the head of urban promotion. And this guy was not happy. He was taking two white boys to black radio stations. He wasn't. He just wasn't. And he said, if I was going to take a couple of crackers to black radio, we better know those black programmers forward and backward. Because if ultimately I was going to take a spot of a black artist on a black radio station and be a couple of white boys and not respect this culture, he'd kill himself first. And he threw a radio records at me and he threw a billboard magazine. There's no Google. There's no internet. I had to go to the New York Public Library Figure and study. And I'd studied. And by the time I met Helen Little at DAS, I knew everything about her. By the time I met Steve Hegwood, I knew everything about him. But every program director that we went to to visit, I knew everything about them. And that's when I became a radio promotion guy. So I know you've talked about it a bunch, but it's just such a fascinating story. You want to you wanna give the two-minute version of, of your no, issue I mean, with, you know, with, with yeah, you and MC Hammer? I mean, no. I mean, so the MC Hammer story is, you know, it's, 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 it's a real simple one. Hammer put out a record called Turn This Mother Out. And at the beginning of the video, his man, the two big MC, says, yo, Hammer, you ain't hidden in New York. And he does something on the video that we took in New York as he was disrespecting Run DMC, specifically Jam Master J. Jam Master J, for me, may he rest in peace, is the reason I'm in the game, period. He heard me rhyme. And said, man, if white boys start rhyming like this, I'm finished. And took me on the road. And that's the reason I got on. Jam Master J was my hero. So we were, we were personally offended by that. So the gas face, we do our little thing about the gas face. And most people think it's about that. Like at the end of the video, the gas face is this, you know, what do we think about Hammer? We make Yo, the hey, gas shut face. the fuck up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do we think about Hammer? And, and Jay and D and Run knock over this. It's MC Hammer, Styrofoam Hammer, and we had a two big MC look-alike, and we kick them in the ass. And people thought it was about that. It wasn't. We had a, a title track on the Cactus album called The Cactus. And at the end of it, lyrically, it's a lyrical thing, my old partner says, the Cactus turned Hammer's mother out. And what that meant was that our album was better than his. His album was called Turn His Mother Out. And our, or please Hammer don't hurt him, some shit, but we just, we thought it was just, you know, the cactus turned Hammer's mother out, which meant our album was better than his. No, he took it as the cactus, which he thought was a euphemism for a penis, was, you know. I fucked your mom. Right. So uh, he put a hit out on us with the uh, Rolling 60 Crips, pay $50,000 to get us killed. And it didn't work because uh, we found out about it before we, we got out to L.A. and we were able to intercept it. But yeah, but I mean, to this day, you know, there is no statute of limitations on on a hit. So he'll never claim to be true. But I met the people that were part of the hit. I've, I've met them. I've spoke to them. 
personally. And, you know, they were there when the money got exchanged hands. They were there when, you know, he was asking, why aren't they dead yet? You know, you know, I know people that. That's real. Yeah. I mean, and I know what we had to do to make the hit not happen. So if you ever watch the American Music Awards, the night when he won all those music awards, there's a guy in a wheelchair sitting next to Michael Jackson that night. And that's my conception. So, you know, I know what we had to do to make sure we were protected. I think the most fascinating part about this story is not that the concept that something that's said on a song or an album could potentially lead to violence or death. I mean, this preceded Big and Tupac, but we all live through that. We know that that's, that's like a real thing these days. What's so fascinating is that that story happened before social media, and I would suspect probably before cell phones too. And so the fact that you had tens of thousands of gang members who were actively trying to kill you, even though the beef had been squashed from the top down, but there's no way to actually communicate it to them. And you actually had essentially a, a, a gang liaison, like hang out with you and, and yeah. a couple, couple different for five days for yeah. five days. And a couple more than one instance, they had to actually like intervene and throw up some like Secret gang signs, yeah. and then people would put their guns back in there. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, insane. yeah. The, the, yeah. I mean, you know, because I didn't. You know, I'm being a tough guy from New York. You know, I've I've been shot at for battling. Like if I wasn't holding a Crown amp that was the size of a Buick, you and I wouldn't be talking today. You know, because this guy shot at me after a battle, and he was high on dust because he got mad, and you know, I said some really flash shit. I'm off the top of my head because I was, I was on fire that day, so I didn't believe none of it, you know. And I'm with my girl, who's now my wife of 33 years, and I'm I want to take her to 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 Beverly Center. Yeah. And here comes this dude, Pookie, you know, and I'm stuck in you know the Hollywood Hyatt, the entire floor to myself. They cleared out the entire floor. They're not letting anybody up on the elevators, and I just want to go. The fuck yeah. you talking about? You know, I'm not it's, believing any of it. You, you did not realize the gravity of it at that point. No, <laughs> it's not fathomable. It's well, impossible. It's so like on the on that same on that same topic of of you know kind of violence in L.A. I, I was looking at some of your old videos, and there was such a sense of playfulness and fun in a mm-hmm. lot of your videos. You know, even the fact that you sampled Steve Martin for for Brooklyn Queens. It's it's funny. It's it's like people having a good time. And there was a lot of acts that were doing that in New York. It was you guys. There was Tribe, KMD, uh, you know, Dela. And, you know, it seems like shortly thereafter. Leaders around, of the New School. Leaders of the New School. Exactly. EPMD. EPMD. Shortly after that time, like around when The Chronic came out, there seemed to be a real change in theme and tone in hip hop. And everything yeah. really became gangster. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, what do you think were some of the major factors that kind of ushered in that new chapter? I mean, the first thing that I think about that pops in my head is that that music was just fucking dope as fuck. It's funky. It felt good. And, you know, the other thing is, if you think about The Chronic, that that album's not gangster. It's just about smoking weed and hanging out. Like, to be totally truthful, it's what we were doing anyway. You know, it's what it, it just. But I don't think you had the references to, to guns and murder and a lot of other things and in in as yeah, in, I mean, as many as many hip hop songs on the east coast at that point because that's not what our life was about i mean as close as you got to that was g rap and rock camp g rap on the run i mean that's one of the hardest records ever talk like sex i mean 
know the ledge. I mean, just, you know, Rakim is, well, Rakim to me is the greatest MC of all time, period, even to this day. There'd be no Nas, there'd be no nothing without Rakim. You know, the 18th letter is just, he's just amazing. So you had that, right? And then you had a little bit of the balance. You had KRS, and you had Kane, and you had Intelligent Hoodlum, and you had JVC Force, but you also had Lakim Shabazz, you know, and you had Latifah and Flavor Unit. And then, you know, the music kind of, as much as the chronic happened at the same time here, you had Naughty by Nature, you had Apache, you know, you had Red Man, you had Wu-Tang, um, Protect Your Neck was around the same time, and then Nas, and then you had OC. So, you know, you had a lot of that balance as well. I mean, those, those acts are, the differences between the, the East Coast experience and the West Coast experience, very different. Yeah. But there's a common theme amongst all those artists that you just, yeah, that you just course, checked, as opposed to yeah. De La and right. Third Base yeah. and Candy and Leaders. Because we, and, and I just talked about this. I just did a documentary. I was inter- interviewed for a documentary on Long Island. The, the reason is simple. In Long Island, you had a house and a car. We were perceived as corny and cornballs because we were kind of well off. We we're middle class. In the boroughs, you're broke. Even though you're not, in the boroughs, you're broke. Yeah. I mean, if you have a dishwasher, you're balling. Oh, you're balling. <laughs> One of my favorite artists to this day, and I, you know, we're talking about Far Rockaway. He's a kid from Far Rockaway that Jim Jones just signed named uh, Keen Streets. And he said, uh, I got the white raft. I got the white wraith coming. I'm going to save that for later. Two doors, all white, project refrigerator. It's the fucking greatest line. It's one of the greatest lines I've heard in a fucking long time. But, you know, when you think about that, you think about, you know, the washing machines washing up on 17th Street or, you know, you, after the raids, what we used to do after we knew there was a raid, we'd go up on the 40s near Hamels and go under the boardwalks for all the guns because that's where everybody would put their, their ratchets. So, you know, like those are the things that you remember when, you you know, you're growing up. But we, we would never rhyme about that. Like, you know, why would we put that in a rhyme? But that's what Cypress did. That's what DOC did. That's what Ice Cube did, even though Ice Cube did it in such an eloquent way that he kind of also grew into something bigger than himself. But same thing with Dre. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's funny. It, when you think about success in hip hop, especially, you know, success from like the 90s and those eras, you know, you think about like MC Breed coming out of Flint um, and you think about DOC and Ice Cube, but also, very early on, you know, a rapper named Common Sense, Crucial Coming Conflict. Where? where is he from? Chicago. Uh, later became Common. Oh, the same, um, same yeah, Common. Okay. Right. Um, crucial Conflict, you know, Hey in the Middle of the Barn. You know, there was all of these pockets of MCs. And obviously, Schooly D out of Philly. There was always this element of where the culture really comes from. Yeah. You just had to be a little more selective in how you listen to it and how it's portrayed. Well, let me ask you this, though. So, you know, if you go to almost any major market in the United States and you turn on the radio, you can find a classic rock station that's going to be playing the Eagles, Tom Petty, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it'd be a lot more difficult to find a radio station that's bumping just Run DMC, Big Daddy Kane, EPMD, KRS-One, Third Base. Like, why do you think that is? Do you think that's just a product of the marketplace or is there something specific about hip-hop culture that tends to really focus on the present more than, let's say, rock and roll? So I think that there is two sides to that coin. 
I think the first one is a very simple and financial one. The people that made the music in those days don't know how to sell the music today. Because if they could, it would already be a product and it would be out there. There have been attempts. Urban One, which is, you know, Kathy uses, which was Radio One, try to do a what's called the bomb format, which was a classic hip-hop format. Couldn't find people to sell it, right? Because you got to sell it. you got to sell advertising. It's very easy to sell a classic rock station to a car dealer, to a bar, to Budweiser. Why? Because those white executives grew up on that shit. Unfortunately, yeah, but unfortunately, the frat boys that grew up on hip hop, they want to leave that behind. So well, what about what about the black middle class that did that also grew up on? Well, the black, what do they own? Where where is their CMO, COO positions that make decisions on ad sales? Where are they? Show me. If you can show me a guy who could write a seventeen million dollar check the way they do for WNEW or any of these light FM stations. Be more than happy to show you a classic station. Now, here in New York, there's a station that is getting ready to ramp up called The Block 94.7. I think they probably, of all the stations, probably have the greatest chance of recreating the format. Because the PD, the OM, which means the program director who programs the music, the operations manager who operates it, and New York, you can find those people. You can find those people that can say, okay, I'll write you a $2 million check to, you know, for my vitamin water to be on your station. Harder to find in Tupelo, harder to find in Jackson, even harder to find in Atlanta. So you spoke, you spoke about the dollars and cents and the economic aspect of it. You think there's a, a cultural aspect of it? Yeah, so well? that was the other side of the coin I was getting to. The other side of the coin is, as much as I love Run DMC, and I do, and I listen to Suck MCs all the time, I can't listen to that in rotation. I just can't. And again, it's very challenging to find that balance where you can have a radio station that knows how to rotate those records in a way that keeps the audience's attention. So, I mean, it seems like music as, a, as an art form as a whole tends to be a young man's game, but particularly, I think hip hop is very much a young man's game and the lifespan of a rapper tends to be very short. And I was personal photographer to, to Sean Combs for 10 plus years. And I got to kind of have a front seat and witness his transformation from an artist to an entrepreneur. And I see a lot of parallels with what you've done. And I'm curious, like what, what skill set or mindset or what, what vision, why, why you, why were you able to pull off what you've been able to do? And so many other people just have it. I learned early on, it's not the strong who survives, it's the flexible. And I was not going to be great at one thing. I was going to do a lot of things really well. And that allowed me to maintain a level of flexibility that um, a lot of my uh, contemporaries don't have. And also, you know, again, to be totally transparent with you, I'm not Jay, not because I don't have the money. I just don't want to be out there like that. I'm not Puff, not because I didn't have the success. I just don't want to be out there like that. I really, really enjoy my anonymity. And that really comes from my recovery as well. I mean, you've had entrepreneurial success in all your different, you know, ventures, but your brand is not nearly as strong as Puff. Is that what you're saying? And, and in order to do that, you've got to be that guy that's on social media and is out there all Absolutely. the time and you're not willing to do that. No. You don't want to do that. 
I no, I, I like my levels of anonymity. I like being, this is going to sound a little egotistical. I don't care. I like being a luminous. I like being the Illuminati of hip hop. I like that if somebody really wants to make a move, you knock on my door three times and I come out of the closet and go, can I help you? How can I be of service? You know? So you got a lot, um, of, a lot of tentacles in the music world yeah, without a lot being of the ten- face. Right. Of- yeah. Like, again, and this is not a slight on any of my contemporaries. I love Jay because I know Jay. I mean, I know Jay since he was on the road with Kane. I know Puff since he was a valet for Dougie Fresh. I met Dr. Dre when he was a fan of Sam Sever. All of these guys are my contemporaries. And I love them like brothers. I might, I might not ever see Jay but I love him like a brother. I might never see Dre. I might never see Puff. I love all these guys like brothers. The end of the day, for at least for me, I know that if I need to do something, I'm able to execute what I can do. And I don't have to broadcast it. And I love the fact that Snoop has, last time I checked, I think like 57 million followers, maybe even more on Instagram. I just crossed 50,000. That's a lot. I'm really proud of that number because I know how authentic those 50,000 people are. They're not following me because I'm on a Corona commercial, you know? And this, again, it's something that I learned in my recovery. And trust me, that's not a slight on Snoop because I told Snoop I saw him this week at this NFT event. And I stayed purposely, not because I wanted to be, you know, in the mix or whatever. But when my mother died and my father died, Snoop was the first person to reach out to me. And I just needed to give him a hug and tell him I loved him and thanked him. And that's all I did. I just just saw him, gave him a hug, said, thank you. Thank you for being the first person to reach out to me when my mom and dad died. And he's like, nah, come on, cuz. I love you, cuz. And, and he walked by. And he's like, fucking search. They're basing this motherfucker. You get the gas face, motherfucker. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm done. And I saw Marshall and uh, Eminem, and I gave him a hug. And I gave him love. And I saw Dave East, and he came over, and he gave me love. And you know, I, I saw my, I saw Jimmy, and Jimmy and I go back <laughs> a long way, and I gave him love, and you know, but I don't like being out. I like being anonymous. I like being in the cut somewhere, just enjoying my life. Was that a a change in your personality from back in, in the oh, day? Because I mean, when yeah. you're 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 on stage, you're, I mean, you and you and Pete were both, you know, let's say co front men, but. That's a very different experience. I mean, did you, is there something about becoming older made you want that limelight less? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I, 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 I there's a lot of it that I attribute to my recovery. Uh, 11, 11, 11 is my recovery date. No, I haven't had a, a drink or a drug in coming up on, you know, 11 years. No fronties allowed, but, you know, hopefully it'll continue. Congratulations. Um, thanks, man. But, you know, that, that whole concept, of anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Like that part of that code of ethics holds more weight for me than anything else because I could not maintain recovery if I didn't understand the fact that as I learn more, I am less and less significant and that my significance really relies on how I can help others. I want to get to that because I I saw in an interview you were talking about your objectives and things that you did and learned in different decades of your life. And you had these four words that I thought were really interesting. You said, 
learn, churn, earn, and return. Explain what that means. Yeah, so my 20s, I realize that, and, and what I try to share when I'm, when I'm speaking at schools or mentoring kids is that in your 20s, all you should do is learn. And in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, you should just learn. Learn as much as possible. Learn, learn, learn. So that's the basis of everything. So in my 20s, all I did was learn because I wasn't making, <laughs> wasn't making. No, I, you know what? I did okay. I shouldn't really knock it. I made money. But I, I, I really learned a lot. You're talking about spiritual learning? You're talking about the, 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 the biz? No, like everything. Learn. Everything. There is no specifics. Learn. Everything. Read, experience, look, learn everything. Sight, set, smells, sounds, learn. But in your 30s, as you're learning, you're also attracting energy in your life, whether that's people, whether that's hoarding. You know, I'm a sneakerhead, so I have, you know, ridiculous amount. Of, of kicks, or, and I'm an original sneakerhead. So in my 30s, I churned. I still learned, but I churned, which means that the things and the people and the places that were no longer truly necessary, I got rid of. And I didn't have to make a grandiose position. Yo, homie, I don't need you anymore. Step off, you're out of here. No, they just slowly dissipated. Those are the kind of things that, like, people that text you on some bullshit. This is my personal favorite. I got into a situation recently this year with a, an NFT company. Wound up really going south. Really was fucking ugly. And a guy I love and respect who wouldn't call me to even wish my kids a happy birthday was the first person to call me to say, yo, what's up with this bullshit? Yada, yada, yada. And I said to him, I said, look, I'm going to answer your question, but under one auspice. That the next time you call me, it's for good things. How's the family? How are the children? How are you? But I'll answer your question because you're calling me on some bullshit. So I'm more than happy to respond to you on this because you're calling based on concern. And I answer his question and then I reiterate it. The next time you call me, please. Make it positive. Make it positive. Because if you call me again about some negative shit, I'll answer it, but then I'm going to block you. That's churn. You don't need people that churn the bullshit. So I have people that will call me and say, oh, did you hear what blah, blah, blah said about you? In my organization, it is part of our bylaws. You do not bring negative shit to my table, ever. If you see somebody that says something negative about me, keep that shit over there. That does not help the positive projection of this company. This company is linear based on positivity and forward momentum. Negative shit is out the back. So you churn. And those are the things that you churn. That's the energy. And more importantly, the people. If you learn and learn and churn in your 20s and 30s, then your 40s are left for you to learn, churn, and earn. The most money I ever made in my life was in the, my 40s. I never made more money in my life. Because you set yourself up. For success. And I set myself up for success because the people I churned and got rid of, I was left with all positive people. All positive, high energy, high thinkers. Distilled it. Yeah. So those people, and now in my 50s, I still earn probably more money again than I ever made. And I still churn every once in a while. And I learn all the time. But now it's about return. So now I'm returning all of the things that I learned to anyone and everyone who comes in my, in my path. And I mean, at this point in your life, is it, is it wisdom or age that makes you realize that 
giving back this knowledge that you've been able to be fortunate to have is more valuable. It's more rewarding than a new car or a new house or whatever. I mean, do you find like a lot of personal gratification in, in, in helping others and returning? Absolutely. And it is about wisdom and it is about age. It's not one or the other. It's both. Well, well, we always like to end this podcast and this is on theme too. We always like to end the podcast by giving the guests an opportunity to, to plug something that they're not personally involved in that they feel is not getting enough attention, whether it's a book, a movie, uh, a cause, an artist. Um, is there something you want to give some shine to that, that the listeners may not be aware of? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, th- <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot of things. People, I'm sure a lot of, there's a lot of things. Yeah, but, I, but I think one of the things that's, you know, when you're talking about Rockaway and you're talking about the backyard, there's an, there's a wonderful organization uh, that was founded by a guy that is in, in the backyard named Sid Mandelbaum. He started an organization called Rock and Wrap It Up. Rock and Wrap It Up is now 25 years old. And what they do is they go, at, go to concerts. They go to festivals and events. They safely wrap and collect the leftover catering and deliver it to homeless shelters and deliver it to people in need. And they, we work with Second Harvest and we're going to... They put 70 million plates of food around the world every wow. year. So they can always use help. So it's rock, rock, R-O-C-K, and rap, W-R-A-P, itup.org. So please, if you can, give or volunteer wherever you are. They're always looking for volunteers that need to go to festivals, need to go to hockey games, baseball games, basketball, football. They collect all the leftover catering. So that's really dope. And then there's an artist uh, in Far Rockaway, Rockaway Rome. And Bobby J from Rockaway, who just released 718313 with, with Hush. Amazing fucking album. Please support that. Keen Streets just put out a new project. He's from Far Rockaway. And um, big shout out to my brother from another, Bodie James, who just did Tanta 4 with Benny the Butcher. And uh, he's got a new project out right now. Yeah. And that's it. Cool. Well, make sure you check those out and search. It's been such a pleasure, man. I, I really, I've been a fan since, since the, the get for, for third base. It was a, I really appreciate you taking time to sit nah, down. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.